everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast, episode number 144, with Dr. Stephen Standiford, president of Bradley University, uh, talking with me about a whole range of topics, kind of just generally about uh, innovating in higher education from his vantage point uh, as the president of an institution. Uh, very grateful for his time and all that he shared, uh, since we don't often have a president of a college or university on the show. So that was super cool. Some things we discussed, though, generally are just, you know, how he kind of pushes forward a student-centered culture at his institution and uh, uses design thinking to uh, continue to improve and evolve uh, the academic offerings there at Bradley um, and how different modalities and different factors uh, kind of play into what programs they decide to launch or uh, close down kind of different, uh, you know, the value propositions that they have for uh, those sort of things. So uh, really great stuff. Uh, check out all of what you mentioned in the show notes as usual. Uh, please do also go check out the merch store. There's a link in the description of this episode, whatever podcast player you're uh, listening on, as well as in the show notes as well. Uh, buying something from the merch store, anything, you know, get the logo on a on a mug or a sticker, uh, notebook, what have you, um, really does help support the show. So uh, very grateful for your support there and for listening to this episode of the Hired Geek Podcast, episode number 144 with Dr. Stephen Standiford. All right. We are here uh, with another really interesting episode of the podcast, exploring a unique perspective on higher education that is from a president of a university, which is uh, quite the honor. Not every day that we have uh, one of those on the show. So uh, I'm very happy to have this time to explore uh, just some broader topics around uh, kind of innovating and improving uh, the learning experience at universities. And um, again, kind of come at, come at it from a very unique perspective of a, of a president uh, versus uh, some of the other stakeholders uh, in higher ed. So uh, we will start out as we always do, Stephen, if you want to introduce yourself and give a brief overview of your professional background and how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Happy to do so. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Um, in terms of background, uh, I joined Bradley University as our president, actually, in the summer of 2020. And uh, if you, of course, if you think about that, that was kind of a unique time to be joining uh, a university. It was during the height of the pandemic. Um, one of the questions I often get early on is, if I knew what I knew know now, would I have still joined at that time? And, and the answer is absolutely yes. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Uh, really thrilled to be here, to be a part of helping us navigate through the pandemic. Uh, prior to joining Bradley University, I served as a, a business school dean for about nine years at two different places, uh, first at the University of Evansville and then more recently at uh, Butler University. Was a strategy professor for much of my career. In fact, uh, I was a, a strategy professor at the University of San Diego. Uh, now that we're here in Peoria, Illinois, it's usually about this time of, my, of the year that my wife reminds me we used to live in San Diego. <laughs> but, uh, but we love it. Uh, and in a prior life, I was actually a chemical engineer. I actually joke that uh, prior to my life in, in academia, um, I was an engineer. I was a chemical engineer, worked for a company called Amico for five years and uh, learned a couple things there. First of all, I, I learned a lot about how to run organizations and how to, to think holistically about uh, organizational success. But I also learned the power of finding the right path for you. Engineering was not the right path for me. Uh, I, and I'm in that path now. Academia is where, where I'm I belong, and, and uh, that's something that I carry forward in my conversations and thinking about how we run the university. That's a little bit of background. Happy to add more, but that gives you a little bit of a flavor of who I am in my background. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And um, yeah, stuff I'm sure is going to come up through uh, my questions here, just like your background through, yeah, kind of organizational uh, dynamics and um, yeah, just your background yeah, in academia and uh, teaching and everything. So, um, 
But again, you know, rare opportunity to have a president on the podcast. I wanted to ask, like, you know, and yeah, I mean, you came in at such an interesting time, so your your experience has been very unique. But just like anecdotally, like, what are some of your favorite parts of being president? I guess like being president of Bradley University specifically. Yeah, it's it's a great question. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I, I periodically reflect on is I, I gave up one of the best jobs in the world to go into administration. Right, I was a faculty member. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved being a faculty member. I loved being a professor. But what I enjoy even more and why I love what I'm doing today is I like being involved in creating the organization that creates the amazing opportunities that we create in higher education. I'm a, I'm a first-generation college student myself, and I recognize and appreciate the richness of life that I've had, the opportunities that I've had, the things I've been able to do and see that no one else in my family has been able to do or see or be a part of. And I attribute that to my education. And so what I, given this a lot of thought, what drives me, what what is my passion is creating the organization that does that for others. I love doing it one-on-one with students as a professor, but the, the part of the job that gets me most excited is day in and day out, I get to be part of thinking about and shaping how we create an educational institution that creates transformational experiences for our students. So a lot of things about what we do, I I meet a lot of interesting people, go to a lot of amazing events, but in the end, it's this idea of building an organization that builds human potential that drives me. You know, the Bradley one specifically is an interesting question because uh, when when I was in a position in my prior role, I was looking around trying to think of where I wanted to go and where I wanted to have an impact. As I look around, um, there are uh, a handful of organizations that I think do a really spectacular job of building human potential, and and Bradley is definitely one of those. And I attribute that back a little bit to our founding, and one of the things that makes us unique is we were actually founded uh, by a female entrepreneur in 1897. That alone makes us somewhat unique, by the way. She's a very unique individual, phenomenal, amazing woman. And in our very charter, it talks about furnishing its students with a means of living an independent, industrious, and useful life. So even from day one, from, from the founding of the university, we've been about building up human potential. And that permeates today in much of what we do. And that's, that's why I'm here. That's why I love being part of the Bradley community and building on this legacy that goes back to the very founding of the institution. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, yeah, just a unique origin point. And then, uh, yeah, seeing how that's kind of uh, maintained and evolved over time and everything. And I think, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, being in a place where you have such a broader impact versus maybe, you know, and that's like you knew, like, you know, that that opportunity was something that resonated and sort of was uh, compelling for you because I think, you know, everyone has their part to play. But I think taking what you've learned and your skills and your point of view and everything and, uh, taking on the challenge to, uh, yeah, be that person that is empowered to be at all the community events, be involved and, uh, have that focus and kind of drive the whole organization towards a, a goal. Uh, and I think so, you know, like at different points in your life, you might just like, want well, you know, different things. I feel like, like I've even like earlier on, uh, for me, like, kind of ebbing and flowing of like, like, yeah, do I want to just be like an individual contributor, just kind of do my thing? Or do I want to be kind of moving up towards like a leadership position? And um, yeah, it could just be where it's like, yeah, you know, I've taught for a while and I'd, I'd like to, you know, kind of move on do all that kind of stuff. But um, 
yeah, that's definitely just such a unique experience and um, yeah, like a unique time to be there. I guess anything like anecdotally, like with all that that you've said, like, yeah, because that would be true for any person in any day and everything like coming in when you did, like, was there aspects of that, the the, the work and uh, of yeah. Bradley in particular, anything that's sort of like, I don't know, anything interesting to share, I guess, just coming in at yeah, such a, yeah. such a odd time. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a great question because um, it's interesting. I was, I was at a conference recently at council for independent college uh, president's conference. And one of my colleagues who came in at the same time, I had to, we all had to pause when he said this, that I would not want to start as a university president other than during a pandemic. <laughs> that's, wow. well, that's a little bit insane, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there's, some, there's some insight into that. And one of the key things that, that I've always maintained is if you really want to understand an organization, the heart and soul of an organization, watch it operate in crisis. How do people function during a crisis? Do they step forward? Um, when people are put under pressure, when they're put under tension, um, true character begins to reveal itself, right? And so one of the things that has been, I think, just an amazing part about being here over the last two years is to two things. One is to watch my colleagues, right? Because, boy, we had to do some crazy challenging stuff. We were on campus all last year. We never sent the students. We sent them home when the pandemic first broke out at that spring break that time when Everybody else did, but we came back mm. and stayed on campus the entire time. And my colleagues moved mountains to make that happen. But their dedication, their commitment to the success and well-being of our students ruled the day, right? They figured out how to make it happen. They figured out what we needed to do, and they stepped forward to do it. And um, a lot of pressure, a lot of tension, a lot of exhaustion in the system right now. But in the final analysis, they did what they had to do to help our students be successful. So that to me is amazing. That's very revealing of the organization. The other piece that I thought was really insightful that I really benefited and and, and so enjoyed seeing is we asked our students last year to behave in ways that are so counter to anything any college student has ever been asked to do. And they did it. We stayed on campus because we recognized we had we, we had the experience of some early outbreaks where we were able to do good contact tracing and really developed a quick understanding of what we needed to do to be able to stay on campus. You know, we, so we kind of stopped the social events, everybody masked up, and, and everybody did. They did it. And it really inspired me of, uh, around the nature of the place, right? The fact that people were willing to step forward and do what had to be done under the most difficult circumstances. So in many ways, it was a unique experience, but it was a really enlightening experience in other ways. And, uh, and, and seeing the organization operate under the most tensions of situations and do so with a pretty high level of, of aptitude and grace was a pretty remarkable experience. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome. And de- definitely a very, uh, <laughs> Yeah, kind of uh, counterintuitive, uh, you know, insider sort of point of view, but like makes absolute sense. And because I think that that is like, and maybe this can kind of segue into like really the core of what we want to talk about is like, you know, when things are going well, like people can kind of rest on their laurels and just kind of think, well, maybe all those little things don't matter. We'll just kind of, you know, phone it in or something or just, you know, not really, uh, put in the effort to continuously improve and those sort of things and adjust and all that. Uh, 
but then yeah you can start to sort of start to sink you know uh, over time and you might just kind of be aloof or kind of oblivious to uh, changes that are happening around you so you know i know that one thing uh, you know that you advocate for a lot is like adjusting curriculum to be more student centric yeah. uh and I think, you know, that's just sort of the, the tagline or what, but like, what does that mean to you exactly? And how do you kind of just broadly, you know, recommend making it happen? And, and we'll get into some yeah. of the nuances of that. Yeah. And, and and even to begin the discussion, I guess what I'll, one of the things I'll, I want to do is make a big distinction between deans, what I would call student concerned versus student centric. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you'll see um, kind of the hallmark of a private university education, not to say that doesn't happen in in public universities as well, but especially in, in private university education, uh, we talk a lot about being student-centric, about being student-concerned. Um, I would actually argue that most universities are, are very student-concerned. A lot of my private school colleagues, a lot of the universities I've been, uh, been associated with are very student-concerned. And what that means is once they come into our system, we care deeply about their success and well-being. But what's interesting is that 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 is predicated on the fact that they come into the system that we've designed the way we think it should be designed. And I think there's a big difference between being student concerned versus being student centric. And in a student centric situation of student concerned is baseline, right? Foundational, you have to do it. But in addition to that, you're being thoughtful about designing the system the processes, the programs, every aspect of a university needs to be designed around understanding and meeting the needs and interests of today's students. And as I look out in the, in, in, in the environment and look at different universities and how we function, and, and quite frankly, how we function as an industry, we are spectacular at being student concerned. I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of being more student-centric. And that's going to really require us to be thoughtful about the systems, the processes we have at the university, to rebuild those around better serving the needs and interests of our students, not as we perceive it, but as we do hard work to understand what really is the needs and interests of the students of today and tomorrow. Yeah. Well, that's something I'm curious about here. I guess there's twofold. So I'll start like... I guess the first point that came to my mind is like, I think a good way to get sort of the ball rolling with this is like, because like I said, students concerned is sort of the baseline if you want to be more student centric and not just be sort of making assumptions anecdotally kind of, you know, just shooting from the hip. Yeah. You would want to bring, you know, student voices to the table and, you know, get feedback and solicited and, you know, all those sort of things. So I guess, are those sort of things like things that you all have done or have started to do or like, how do you kind of include uh, the student voice just to either inform what you're doing or to let you know how you're doing or both, I guess. Yeah. So we're, we're beginning this process and it's, this is a journey, right? This is not something that's going to happen overnight, but we're getting the process and I'll give you a sense of part of the way we started. So we, uh, the typical university strategic planning process is you form a committee, the committee starts talking about strengths, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, starts developing an outline creates uh, uh, some strengths of the university that you want to leverage and then starts developing the strategy accordingly. It's, it's as inside out approach to developing strategy. And in a truly student centric approach, what you should be doing is begin by having a conversation with students 
about what they're looking for in a higher education today. So we worked on a strategic planning process this last year, and the process begun with actually not even talking to our students. We actually worked with a company called Quester up in uh, Iowa, and we did uh, interviews of 1,600 prospective students. And we talked to students that you know did apply to Bradley, came to Bradley, applied to Bradley, didn't come to Bradley, and a bunch of students that never even considered us. Because what we're trying to understand is if we're going to design a higher education system for tomorrow's students, we need to be talking to them about what they're interested in. There were some interesting insights that came out of that process. We then took that information and had a series of internal student focus groups to say, here's what we're hearing, help us better understand this material and refine it. And then and only then did we begin an internal discussion with some folks here on campus around what the strategy should be. And in that second conversation around trying to formulate the strategy itself, uh, we were pretty insistent that, and the baseline of everything has to be the research we've developed around what students are telling us they want in today's higher education environment. And so it began with the, the development of our strategy. We're now in the, the execution phase of that strategy. And as I tell my colleagues, in fact, we'll have our our spring forum where everybody comes back on campus and we have that conversation uh, coming up here soon, I will literally be telling them that, and this is the beginning of a change of thinking where we really design everything we do, degree programs, uh, how we create the housing environment on campus, what does mentoring and advising and all, how do all those things function, design it from the outside in by beginning a fairly in-depth conversation with our students first. So absolutely it requires that. and. And just when you think you've done enough of that communicating, identifying, defining, you got to go back and do some more. And only when you're pretty confident you have a good sense of what the students are looking for, do you actually begin the actual redesign phase. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point. I didn't even think about like, why did people not consider you? Like, why did people apply and not go? Like, I was thinking like, oh, you know, like current students and being like, oh yeah, we should get like another bike rack or something. Like, like that's part of it. But also, yeah, like what, what, was a deterrent or like what were points of friction before you even, you know, paid a deposit and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, that's a really good insight. Um, cause yeah, I mean, I think it's also like, it's so cyclical too. And I think like, if you start kind of establishing that culture, like you're soliciting that input, making changes, and then you can be like, Hey, so like, what do you think? Like we did this based on what you said, is that, you know, what you were looking for? And they can be like, Oh, you know, a little more of this, a little less of that. And like, you know, or, you know, that's right. Spot on, do, do more of that. Uh, and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely is just kind of that, that culture and keeping consistent with it and always kind of the, trying to honor that, uh, uh, input from students and everything. And I think, you know, in addition to that, it would be, you know, my second question, the thing that I was thinking about here is like, you know, making it happen and trying to affect that culture where it could be that people just aren't used to it. Like there's some inertia maybe of just in terms of how processes have worked or uh, those sort of things. So any insights there of just sort of like, you know, being that kind of that change union, especially from the point of view of a, of a president sort of affecting that change, because it might just be not like resistance, but you just might have to obviously like educate people or can you give the context around, you know, yeah. changes and why they're happening? Well, you're, first of all, you, you're absolutely spot on. It's around changing the culture and um, you're being kind in your comments about resistance. Uh, so <laughs> uh, higher education, and, and there's good reason for that, right? I mean, higher education, we, we had about 
a century of unfettered demand. I, I look at data, we were founded in 1897. So I've collected data from about 1870 up to about 2010. And if you look at that data, it is a constant growth of demand for higher education. Uh, and even in terms of you know world wars and things like that, you would see it flatten a little bit, but never really falter. And the demand just ticked up. And then in 2010, for the first time, we began to see a slight decline, and we're anticipating even larger declines of both interest and, um, quite frankly, the availability of students due to some demographic changes coming up soon. So for centuries, literally centuries, we have not really needed to be adaptive to the market. So the, the skill sets in higher education for doing so just aren't there. We haven't developed those skill sets. So one of my jobs, and this goes back to our earlier conversation around what do I love about being the president of Bradley University, one of my responsibilities is to set up systems that help my colleagues get comfortable with some of these changes. Uh, one of the things we're implementing this year is we're introducing a new budget process and uh, we're calling it the responsibility center management process. This is not unheard of in higher education. It's not what I would call super common, but it's not unheard of. And basically, each of the college deans will have a profit and law statement they get to operate under. And um, if they're attracting students and they're providing things that students care about and is providing value, uh, they'll do well in this model. And if they're not, they'll financially, they'll have to make some adjustments. And what I like about it is it's, it's aligning the incentives with what it is we're trying to accomplish. And it's giving the, the, the deans and, and the department chairs and, and their colleagues tools to help them um, benefit from taking a more, what I would call student centric versus student concerned approach. And so that's, so finding those kind of tools. We introduced uh, earlier this year, actually would have been last year, a new program approval process. And it used to be that if you wanted to introduce a new academic program, um, this model exists at thousands of universities across the country. Uh, the faculty would get together, talk about what they think they would like to offer. It would go through a faculty approval process. And then somewhere in the process, way down after things had already developed quite a ways, uh, the administration would weigh in and say, can we do this? Do we have the resources to do it? Can we pull it off? We've flipped that process and kind of said, look, love the new ideas approach. We want to do that. But don't run it through a system until we make sure there's actually a viability to it. So part of the new program approval process, you have to create quite frankly a profit loss statement. You have to show what we think enrollment's going to look like for the first three years. And uh, if it looks attractive, one of the things that I think makes this program a little bit unique is if it looks attractive, we'll invest in it, right? We'll put resources into it. Uh, we had uh, a program come forward on game design. Game design is one of our super hot areas. So we're doing a new master's degree in game design and it looks very, very attractive. So we've helped them grow the resources so that they could launch the program. And then after we say, we'll do that, here's some resources go because we can see in the information you put together, there's a specific form and questions they need to answer that you've done this from the perspective of, is this going to attract students? This is something students fundamentally care about. If so, we'll invest in it. And then send it through the curricular process. So it flips it a little bit. It seems like a subtle change, but it really changes the thinking a lot. The first question is, is it viable? And in that process, every new program comes with a sunset clause. So if it's not 
being successful in three years, we will shut it down. And I heard somebody say once, if you want to come back, if you want to live forever, come back as an academic program. And I think there's some regrettable amount of truth to that. And, but the challenge is it doesn't allow you to innovate. It doesn't let you try new things. So this new program says, no, no, that's okay. Try it. If it works great, we'll continue to do it. If not, we will recognize that, honor the fact that it was well thought out, that it was well launched, shut it down and try something else. And so it's building those kind of systems that, that encourage a willingness and an ability to, to look outside of the organization to understand what might be appropriate and what might be successful. And those are the kind of things we're trying to build into the day-to-day operations of the organization to make this new process work effectively. Yeah, I'm so glad you covered that. That was actually something I wanted to ask about was like sort of the, you know, the content side of it of making kind of curricular adjustments and everything. And um, yeah, I think that that is like a really smart way, like, because it's like, you know, that that sunsetting, the sunset clause, like, that you can kind of mitigate risk saying like, okay, we'll give it a shot, but just for this period of time, and we have to like, you know, reevaluate at that time. So yeah, it doesn't just become sort of this like staggering zombie of a right. uh, program, whatever. Um, I use and... that term a lot, zombie programs. They <laughs> yeah, um, I love using it. Yeah, I'm just sort of like, it's, that's just like a nature of life sometimes where it's just like, oh, wow, there's like this thing over here. It's just yeah. sort of like staggering around. Um, but uh, well, yeah, and I think um, I like what you're saying too, of just sort of like developing you know, a profit loss kind of thing, because that could also just be, we're like, hey, this isn't going to be the biggest program in the world, but we're like, you know, going about our costs and everything in a smart way. So it's like, okay, we're doing this really lean, you know, and that just sort of all kind of checks out and makes sense kind of thing. And anymore, yeah, there's just so many good resources and information to like, kind of just like evaluate the market of like, is you know, because on one hand, it's like, are we the only one doing this? That could be good or bad because it's like, maybe there's a reason nobody else has done it or like, you're going to be kind of a trailblazer or, you know, yeah, just seeing like, well, there are a lot of, you know, game design masters, but none in Illinois or something, you know, like, like that sort of thing. So it's like a little bit of proof of concept and you can kind of like, you know, stake a claim and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, so th- I know those are kind of some of the pivots of like, you know, what are we teaching and that sort of thing. Um, the other side of the coin that I was curious about is like with this sort of thing of like curricular adjustments, because I imagine it would come in with those like new programs I mean that people want to do is like, how do you see the modality, you know, like digital online or hybrid learning kind of fitting in here of how you're kind of uh, making those adjustments and things and determining, you know, yeah, it's an interesting question. Right. And if we're doing a really good job, so in, you know, one of the models that, that, that I use kind of as a metaphor for this is uh, design thinking, a human-based design thinking is a hot topic and there's a lot of work in that space. And, the two key first steps in design thinking are empathize and design, right? You got to empathize and then design something around really under, really understanding the needs and interests um, of the individuals you're trying to serve. And if you're understanding those needs and interests, well, the modality will reveal itself to some extent. Uh, there's, there's an old phrase that a problem well-defined is, is half solved, right? So if we are doing a really, really good job of, understanding the needs and interests of our students, the modality will become clear based on what they need. So for example, we know one of the things that was really revealing for us last year is how desperate our undergraduate students were to be on campus. And um, 
I don't know if every university had this impact, but boy, I gotta tell you, it was really, really strong here. And one of the things that that was really telling because uh, we learned how important those face-to-face on-campus experiences are to our students. Now, we've, if, if we're doing a really good job of human-based design, we already know that, right? Because that's a, when we talk to them and we ask them what's important, they're telling us that. But it's interesting, there are other students where that will be less important. Uh, we have a fairly sizable hundreds of online nursing students. You can actually got to get a, a doctorate in nursing practice uh, online uh, through Bradley University. And for those students, they're almost all working, they're engaged. For them to step out of the workforce, to come back full-time, to take a program, just doesn't make any kind of sense. Great, the modality is different for them. And so part of figuring out what modality makes sense, whether it's digital, whether it's hybrid, uh, whether it's face-to-face or however you want to structure it, the heart of that really is doing a really good job of understanding the needs and interests of the students you're serving. And once you understand that, things completely open in terms of possibility. So I, what, what, you're, what you would see if you dug into our programs today is you'll see a fairly wide amount, uh, a wide spectrum of digital hybrid face-to-face. And that's because different students have different needs and we're adjusting the program based on the needs of the students that we're serving. So will it matter moving forward? Absolutely in the right environments. <laughs> At the heart of that is what do the students you serve need to be successful? Face-to-face will always be there for a certain group of students as will online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that is like a good perspective to seeing, yeah, again, if you're listening to students, you might know that they, you know, I think we see this more so in the undergrad space is that like, yeah, they want that kind of classic in-person college experience and maybe just some options you know, a fairly robust number of options to just take some courses online or if like, uh, you know, doing it over the summer or something, you know, like those sort of things. Like, and yeah, a lot of times, like, you know, we've seen such an explosion in like graduate level uh, online programs and that sort of thing. Like it, you know, yeah. so we've been on a block for a couple of times. Like, yeah, I, I, you know, I just completed my undergrad and I want to, you know, work my full-time job, live where I want and, you know, get my MBA, whatever. Um, so yeah, I think it's yeah always like kind of trying to take the best of both worlds uh, and giving options and yeah being responsive to what uh, yeah uh, students are looking for. Yeah. Well, you you've alluded to this, and I think we'll see this more and more moving forward. Is it, and don't assume that that modality is constant even in program, right? Because to your good point, undergraduate students, uh, they that relationships, connection with each other, key connections with faculty are important but not with everything, right? So if I'm, a, if I'm an engineering student and I'm taking an elective in computer technology and I can do that online, I might be comfortable with that. So part of it is having a portfolio of options. So the students, one of the things that we've gotten clear feedback from our interview with prospective students is they're looking for a greater level of flexibility. And so building in that flexibility to say, you know, it's not all this or that, but come, as you are who you are and let us figure out what works best for you. And I think you'll see that in the modality of courses as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I guess quickly, like the last thing is I've just been observing it a lot um, as well. It's just like the overall sort of like packaging of the learning experience. One is sort of the modality and everything, but, you know, short courses, certificates, you know, you've got like boot camps at universities now uh, for, you know, programming and 
whatever else. But um, I don't know if you see that kind of working in uh, to strategy or just sort of like your point of view on that kind of thing of like trying to better serve all learners, whether it is like a quote unquote traditional aged student coming in from high school or anyone in the community uh, that wants to, you know, pursue higher learning. Um, just curious, I guess, your perspective on that. Yeah. Oh, I, boy, I think this is where we're going to have to see a lot of dramatic change, quite frankly, because, you know, what defined learning as a 15 week, three credit hour semester, right? I mean, that's, there are some things where that makes sense and there are many things where it does not. And that's one area where we do a really good job of trying to understand the needs and interests of our students. I what we're working towards, and I think what you'll see more and more of, is breaking that apart, right? There, there are going to be certain things where that absolutely makes sense. And then other cases where it does not. Immersive two-week courses, I think, are something that you'll see more and more of. Um, online modules, certificates. And it really comes down to, again, understanding the needs and interests of today's students and giving them what they need, not necessarily what fits into the system we've designed. That traditional three-credit semester-based model is a model we created. It isn't necessarily one built around what's in the best interest for students. So for example, one of the things we have is we have a bunch of our engineering students who are interested in music. Believe it or not, there's a lot of overlap in engineering and music. And so an academic inclination is to say, well, then we have to have a minor or a major in music and they could be dual majors or minors. Well, that's one solution. Another option would be maybe it's a short course, maybe it's a boot camp, maybe it's an online class. And I, if we're being really responsive to our students, I think you're going to see a lot more of these short courses, boot camps, things like that. I could see, for example, our online nursing students saying, boy, this has been great, but technology is really playing a bigger part in nursing. I need to learn some coding. So they join us for a coding boot camp, not degree based, not maybe even credit based, but a certificate that they put on top of their nursing degree that adds value. And uh, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of the more interesting innovations to happen. And to do that, we have got to get out of the mentality that learning happens in a credit-based semester-long framework. There are a lot of interesting frameworks we can use. And I think that's where you're going to see some of the most interesting innovations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a good example. Because I think that that is like, you know, there's, you're going to have to take the, you know, anatomy, physiology, core, like all that, like kind of just core medical knowledge that you need to work in healthcare. But then, yeah, if you have a skill set, and maybe you get that after working professionally for a couple of years, you're just like, man, I really, you know, would love to work in a capacity of like, um, I'm sure they have a, an acronym for it in healthcare. Uh, sure. But like, I'm, just, I'm thinking of it so much in higher ed that like, you know, on teams I'm on, and I've, I've, never, I've never even really formalized it, but just like being the like CRM expert where it's like, oh yeah, I can kind of like tinker and build reports and that sort of thing. And like, uh, some friends of mine that work in higher ed too, were like, it's such a competitive and appealing skill set to have if you want to work at a college or elsewhere. Is just being like, yeah, you know, like I'm the Salesforce admin for our admissions team and whatever. And it's like, yeah, I mean, like you're you're set up pretty well with that skill set. It's you know, if you have like a certificate or some sort of, you know, credential and that sort of thing. So it's it's that stuff that kind of layers on where it's like, yeah, you study higher ed, learn all the like developmental theories and how colleges run, and then you get to like, you know, add in a little uh, extra dose of. Uh, yeah, just like sort of the uh, technical aspect of um, the work that you're using, you know, these different tools for and everything. But um, so, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, um, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of this model, and I think you're going to see it pop at a lot of different areas. We had, we had 
an engineering student interested in music, he actually created the first uh, self-playing guitar. Wow. Well, that's, uh, believe it or not, it's a surprisingly complex engineering feat, but you got to know something about music to do that as well, right? So he, he doesn't need a music degree to do that, but having more knowledge of the instruments of, of music in general would be powerful. And let him be the engineer and layer on some music experience as well. And I think that's, again, that's when we really take the time to understand the needs and interests of our, interests of our students breaking apart the degree and allowing flexibility to, to learn, focus on the learning, right? What do you really want to learn? What skill sets do you want to develop? Um, that has to trump anything that represents a traditional credit hour or major or degree and really focus on helping the students learn what's going to help them be most successful. Wow. Damn. Uh, well, as we wind down, you know, on all this kind of stuff that we're talking about, uh, you know, modalities of learning and the time length and all this stuff, like, you know, leadership and everything, uh, we always like to have resources to share out in the uh, show notes. So anything that you'd want to give uh, kind of a tip of the hat to any podcast books, articles, anything at all um, that's kind of uh, grabbing your attention right now, or maybe some like classic favorites or something. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I, we've been talking a lot about this on campus recently. What are some of the things we really be talking about? Um, that one of the, actually two resources, I don't know that I'll give specific articles or books, but maybe topics. Uh, we've actually talked about, we've been talking about higher education and our turnaround phase. And one of the things that good turnaround organizations do is they get very they get very, um, customer centric very fast. So that's a nice framework to think about. And from a, how do you do that? Well, uh, we're spending more and more time thinking about design thinking, literally the concept of design thinking. Because the process, when you go through a design thinking process where you have to, and kind of the key steps are empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. It's just a good model that if you're doing that well, it forces you to be student-centric in a way that has not been typical in higher education. And great books out there on that. Change by Design by Tim Brown is kind of a classic. Uh, the Design of Business by Roger Martin is another one. And, and you know, almost any resource you can find that talks about design thinking, I think is really helpful in making that shift to being truly student centric versus being student concerned. Yeah, it's a, a great recommendation on a couple of books there, because I feel like that'll also just be like the germ to like, yeah. get people going on like, you know, if you like this, go check out this. Like, sure. yeah, because there's, there's <laughs> such, yeah, like great knowledge base out there. So just like, here, there you go. There's just a little bit like morsel to get you started with. And then yeah. Yeah, go uh, go from there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember taking a design thinking course. Uh, oh, at a, a, yeah, like a leadership minor um, yeah. in undergrad, and like that was like a big philosophy of that uh, department and everything. And yeah, such a great perspective. And because uh, it's like even like I've seen so many stuff on like social media about this, where like universities when they're like building paths on like you know the mall or the green or whatever. You just like observe where people naturally walk and it's like okay we're gonna build the path there versus like assuming like oh we're gonna put like a perfect little like you know square rectangle whatever of pathways where it's like people like cut across it's like just put a pathway there and you like those sort of things where it's like you know yeah. you either kind of lead with it or you sort of follow you know if you have that like design thinking point of view is like yeah you could just observe how people use a space and see like Oh, there's these points of friction. That's like move those things out of the way, or people don't do this because it's like, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, like not clear, like those sort of yeah. things. So sometimes um, it's that simple, right? Just yeah. listen to what people are telling you, and if you do that, you can often come up with better answers. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, we will uh, end this episode as we always do. Uh, if you want to share a final thought or a call to action on this topic to uh, wrap everything up. Uh, sure. So, so one of the things it's, it's an interesting time in higher education and a lot of pressures on the industry. And we could go into a whole nother conversation as to why that's the case. But one of the things you'll periodically hear is a call for, um, in fact, it was just in, I just read an article recently talked, literally the title was universities must act like business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Remember my background, business school dean for a number of years. My, I did mention this earlier, but my wife spent a, was a CFO for a number of years. So I've got mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit of business in my background. And I'd push back on that a little bit. And uh, because we are and always will be mission-based organizations and we need to make sure we remain true to our missions. The one I think most important learning that we can bring forward from the business community that would be helpful is the power of truly understanding the needs and interests of those we serve. And to me, that, that's that distinction between being student-centered versus being truly student-centric. And I would argue that it's really time for us as an industry in higher education to, to, to be thoughtful about that and to become truly student-centric in our activities by designing our organizations not just caring about students when they arrive, but fundamentally rethinking our organizations and building them, rebuilding them around the needs and interests of today's students. And it, it sounds like a subtle change, but it's a big one. But I'm really convinced that it could be the salvation of higher education. I mean, that's such a beautiful uh, message to end on. And I, I completely agree. Yeah. And I, and I love those things that are like, a change of perspective or, you know, just like it. Yeah, it seems small in the moment, but it can have such big impacts. You know, it is, I think, certainly a big part of the purview of a, a president of a institution is, you know, yeah, affecting that culture and um, how people work towards goals and what those goals are and everything. But uh, I don't, and like what I was thinking of when you were saying that, yeah, it's like where it's like people do try to equate those things and all that of like college is a business or should be more like a business and those sort of things. It's like, like you said, it's a mission driven organization. So it's sort of more like, you know, nonprofit or a for purpose, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, organization. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, they still have to think about profit loss and all that, like all those things you mentioned that are such like maybe foreign concepts to certain people and academia and everything. It's like, yeah, taking the best of both worlds and merging them together. And I think it's, yeah, like some of these ideas, concepts, practices, and tools and different things like that can be a catalyst to still live out that mission uh, that has always driven any of these colleges and universities and everything. So, um, yeah, so such a great place to end on. And uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing all that you did and for for hanging out for this episode. It was uh, it was a treat. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast.